0: Hi, I'm Jen and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide called 13 Reasons Why Your Child Won't Listen to You and What to Do About Each One, just head over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Hello, and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today, we're going to continue our exploration of topics related to mindfulness, as we start to do some episodes looking at the connection between our brains and our bodies, and how we can learn to pay more attention to the signals our bodies are sending us. Gentle and respectful parenting methods say that for your child to feel unconditional love, you must always be unruffled. You must always validate your child's feelings, even when you're feeling incredibly frustrated. You must protect them from emotional discomfort or they will be damaged. But what if that wasn't true? What if you could meet your needs and your child's needs on a daily basis so you don't feel so frustrated and your kids won't be damaged? I've helped thousands of parents to do exactly this. You don't have to get walked all over for your child to feel unconditional love. I'll help you make this shift in the free Setting Loving and Effective Limits workshop. Sign up now at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash setting limits because we're about to get started together. We talked with Dr. Susan Pollock a few months ago about mindful self-compassion, and now we're going to dig more into the mindfulness aspect to learn what it really is. And does it always involve sitting on a cushion cross-legged for hours a day? What the research says about its benefits and how we can bring it into our lives if we decide that we might want to try it. And I also just wanted to add a brief reminder that the Taming Your Triggers workshop is currently open over the course of 10 weeks at a relaxed pace of one module per week. You'll learn the real sources of your triggers, which aren't really about your child's behavior. Using tools like mindfulness, you'll begin to be able to create space between your child's behavior and your reaction to it, where it might seem like right now there's just no space at all. And then instead of yelling or walking away, either mentally or emotionally, or just shutting down, you'll be able to choose an effective response to your child. And then on the far fewer occasions when you are still triggered, you'll be able to repair your relationship with your child so it doesn't become something that's triggering for them when they have their own children. We'll have community interactions on a platform that isn't Facebook and lots of support to help you achieve the changes that you want to see when you sign up. Sliding scale pricing is available. Learn more about the workshop and sign up at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash taming your triggers. And so our guide for today's episode is Diana Winston, who is Director of Mindfulness Education at the Semel Institute's Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's the author or co-author of three books related to mindfulness, most recently, The Little Book of Being, Practices and Guidance for Uncovering Your Natural Awareness. Diana has taught mindfulness since 1999 in a variety of settings, including hospitals, universities, corporations, nonprofits, and schools in the US and Asia, and has developed teacher trainings on this topic. She's a founding board member of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association, and she spent a year as a Buddhist nun in Burma in her youth. Welcome, Diana. Thanks for inviting me. So I wonder if we can maybe start at kind of a high level and then get into the research. And then from there, we can learn about some mindfulness practices that we can actually do ourselves. So maybe we can start with a definition of what mindfulness is and where did this come from? Because as far as I know, they're not rooted in the Anglo-Saxon white culture that I grew up in.
1: (laughs) Okay. So I like to define mindfulness as paying attention to our present moment experiences, with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with what is or to be with that experience. So it's really about learning to live in the present moment. Most of the time, our minds are lost in the past, lost in the future, worrying, obsessing, planning, ruminating, replaying, right? It's hard for us to come into the moment, but the anxiety, depression, fears, worries, concern, it all sort of lives in thoughts of the past or future. So mindfulness is this invitation into the present moment. And the concept comes from, so mindfulness is part of what it means to be human. It doesn't, there's no like, I mean, we all have this capacity to be present, awake, alert at home, inside ourselves. But the practice of mindfulness comes to us out of the Buddhist world where 2,500 year tradition of training people, people you're mentioning monasteries, but people in monasteries and also lay people in in this art of training your mind to pay attention. And so this has been passed down for thousands and thousands of years. And somewhere in the, well, in the seventies, fifties, sixties, seventies, people went over and practiced and brought it back to the U S or people came from different parts of, of Asia and brought it to the U S. And then it slowly became secularized. So there's a big Buddhist movement, of course, but there's, a, it's been also secularized as mindfulness in the last, you know, 20, 30 years.
0: Mm, Yeah. And I would like to delve into that a little bit more because I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, But I wonder if firstly we can distinguish maybe between mindfulness and meditation. How, How do you draw that boundary? Where does that lie?
1: So meditation, you can think of like sports. Sports is a big category. There's hundreds of types of sports. Meditation is a big category with many, many types of meditations. And then mindfulness is a type of meditation. So mindfulness is interesting because it's both cultivated through meditation and that way it's a meditation practice. And it's also a quality of attention that you can have at any time. So you don't have to be meditating to be mindful. And we can talk about, you know, the different ways that we could do that.
0: Yeah. Okay. That'd be awesome. So why should I even bother being mindful? (laughs) You, You say it's an inherent part of the human experience and to some extent it is, but until I started deliberately and purposefully exploring this for myself 18 months or so ago, nobody had ever really talked to me about this. You know, nobody, my parents, my teachers, nobody that I was growing up with talked about this. And so if we're just hearing about this for the first time, and maybe life isn't so bad, why not just keep doing what we've been doing all along? What can this add?
1: Well, there's many, many different reasons why we might be interested in mindfulness. And, you know, a lot of People come to mindfulness because of suffering in some way, like anxiety, depression, mindfulness. I mean, the research is very robust around how mindfulness can help anxiety and depression and physical pain, chronic pain. And there's a whole host of physical related health conditions, mental health conditions. So there's that level of reducing suffering that might be attractive to people. And especially these days where our minds, you know, it's just such a scary time and our minds are all over the place and there's so much um, uncertainty. Mindfulness, I've found that people are gravitating towards mindfulness more than ever in this last year. And aside from that, it's kind of like a deep dive into yourself. It's a way to, we're so externally focused, like our lives are taking ourselves out of ourselves all the time, you know, input, input, input. And we rarely go, inward. So when we start to go inward, there's often insights that come, understanding, self-understanding, and people talk about their lives being transformed over doing it over a long period of time. And I also want to say it's not for everybody. So it's, you know, just like no medication works for everybody. Meditation isn't everybody's particular thing. And so just to say, like, I encourage people who are interested to give it a try, but don't assume that it's going to be like the thing for you. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when I was reading your book, a couple of other ideas stuck out as well. The idea that our judgments of ourselves lead to self-hatred, and and you told a lovely story about the Dalai Lama. Can you tell us
1: that story? There's a famous story about the Dalai Lama where he was in a conference with many teachers. He was with teachers, and they were asking questions about how they should be teaching these Buddhist and mindfulness practices to the Western mind. And they said, well, one of the things we struggle with is self-hatred. And it got translated apparently back and forth several times before and the Dalai Lama just couldn't get it. He's like, self-hatred, self-hatred. And then finally he got it and he's like, oh, I don't even know. Like, (laughs) like, like it's not even part of his, I think in the cultural background, it's just, it's so much stronger in the U.S. culture and in white Western culture. Well, not only white, but all sorts of in the dominant culture, Mm -hmm. we see a tremendous amount of self-hatred. And I think in Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan practice, we weren't seeing a lot of that during that period of time.
0: Mm, Yeah. And (laughs) I think that that really just illustrates one of the huge benefits of this is, is that it can change the way that you see yourself and the way that you interact with yourself. And I've talked a number of times on the show about like, the body-brain connection and actually learned something from your book that I hadn't seen elsewhere, the gut being the second brain, being known as the second brain that tells us uh, information about our experience. And that's a fascinating topic that I hope to dig into in a future episode as well. I mean, who, who knew that our gut was telling us so much about our experience?
1: Yeah. There's some interesting work being done at UCLA related to that. I can point you to the people if you're interested.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so um, before we leave this particular aspect of it, are we trying to be mindful all the
1: time? So mindfulness can enhance one's life in a lot of ways. And so if we're not mindful, what are we doing? We're kind of checked out. We're missing our lives. That's a lot of people report that just like, you know, the days go by and they're barely connected to themselves or connecting to their families. And so I've had lots and lots of students who practice mindfulness and say, oh, I'm seeing my life in a whole new way. I'm having more gratitude, more appreciation, more connection. I had this doctor taking a course with me and it was a beginning course. And after six weeks, he he said, you know, I've lived on my street for 15 years and I never noticed that there were mountains at the end of the street. And that's the kind of, I mean, it's not unusual (laughs) and maybe that's an extreme case, but people tend to be checked out. So mindfulness can enhance our way of being. It can help us to regulate emotions. And so in that way, it's so helpful to have mindfulness. But do we have to be mindful every single second? Probably not. And there's lots of reasons where you wouldn't want to be mindful. So you're watching a movie or reading a book or you don't want to be like, So in the present moment that you're missing the story, or there's a lot of times that we need to have critical thinking of the future and the past and analysis and daydreaming and imagination. All of those things are not the same faculty as mindfulness. And we want to encourage that. But we can do it with awareness, right? So we can bring awareness to imagining and analyzing and critical thinking. So it's it's sort of it's an interesting thing that you know each of us has to explore for ourselves. Okay.
0: All right. And then I want to touch briefly on the Buddhism aspect of it. And I first discovered mindfulness and meditation at the same time when a friend recommended Sam Harris's app, Waking Up, which was interesting. I found it interesting, although ultimately frustrating for a number of reasons. And (laughs) the reason that I bring him up is that he's sort of famous for disentangling mindfulness practices from religion and saying, you don't have to be Buddhist to practice mindfulness. And in fact, that there is nothing inherently Buddhist in mindfulness. And I think that's a position that Dr. John Kabat-Zinn has taken. Too, who was another one of these early people who uh, brought this practice to the U.S. and has done a lot of research on its effectiveness in uh, treating a variety of ailments, and I think it's it's no secret to listeners that I identify as an atheist. But the idea that I might be taking these practices that have existed for thousands of years. In countries that were colonized by the country that I came from, (laughs) and have been brought to the Western world essentially by well-educated middle-class white men, really kind of did give me pause. And so, I wonder what your take is on on that, please.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, and it's something that I think about a lot. And when I train teachers, we talk about it quite a bit. Like, is this cultural appropriation? And I think there's, first of all, there's there's a lot of nuances to it, but these practices shouldn't be divorced from their roots. I think there are contexts where we want to bring them in where we don't want to share that they're Buddhist because it might be problematic. For instance, bringing them into the public schools, right? Right because they've been pulled out of those religious roots, all the dogma, all of the religiosity, it's all been removed. (laughs) And it's just this practice. It's not Buddhist. It's not like a Buddhist religious practice. And in that way, we can in good faith say, yeah, we're teaching kids tools that can help them with their mind to be more present, to work with attention, to regulate emotions like that. So in that I think it's it's appropriate that they're a little bit removed from the roots. But I think it's really important that we honor the roots and that it's not like somebody gets the idea that Jon Kabat-Zinn invented mindfulness in 1979 or something. (sighs) We really don't want that to happen, too. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's about keeping the dialogue alive, especially as I train teachers and helping them think about what's their relationship to it and how they want to talk about it. And These days also, I think there's more acceptance like, oh, yeah, this comes from the Buddhist world and it can be done by anyone of any background, of any religion, of any culture, at any moment. So that's how I kind of frame it and like to think about it.
0: Okay. Cool. Thanks for for helping us to understand that a little bit. So, okay. So let's go into the research. <laughs> so uh, you published a book in two thousand nineteen, The Little Book of Being. And I'm going to quote. It says, classical mindfulness meditation has been shown to improve health outcomes for stress related conditions, reduce pain symptoms, improve emotional regulation, help with anxiety and depression, increase the ability to pay attention, cultivate states of well being. I mean, it sounds like a magic pill. <laughs> you also go on to say that quote, many of the mindfulness studies have not been replicated, use small sample sizes, and don't have adequate control groups. And so I reached pretty similar conclusions uh, when I did a research, sort of a a review of the literature earlier this year, with the addition that much of the evidence is correlational rather than causal. And I saw a statistic online saying that the global mindfulness meditation app market alone is estimated to be $2.1 billion between 2020 and 2025, which just blew my mind. And I'm just wondering, why do you think there's such a discrepancy between the state of the research where we're still looking at these tiny studies, tiny samples that are not longitudinal and all of the money that's being made off these ideas? Why why are we not looking at longer term, bigger scale studies to really understand the benefits?
1: I think it's partially the state of science in general, like you see that in other areas. It's not just mindfulness where, you know, a flashy study gets a lot of attention and it hasn't been replicated and then it's kind of popularized. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it's like a general thing, but you know, these studies take a long time, like the really big studies that people, they are underway. Like there, I mean, I I know of of people that are doing these large scale, you know, 35,000 subjects, you know, like big scale things, but they take a long time and yeah. the field is really new. So even though they started doing the research in the end of the 70s, there were only like three to five studies done at that point. And now we can say there's maybe six, 7,000 studies at this point. And it's really sped up, really predominantly in the last five to 10 years. And so it's just, it's just a very young field that is taking time to develop. And so I'll just throw in this plug. We're doing a multi-site study, which is one of the few multi-site studies that's being done with um, breast cancer survivors, younger mm-hmm. breast cancer survivors. So we're doing it with Johns Hopkins and Dana Farber and UCLA. And we're looking at young women who've, who've survived breast cancer and how mindfulness can help like improve quality of life and anxiety, depression symptoms and stuff. And so it's exciting to see these things happening, but it's a, it ha, there's a long way to go is my point. So now to answer the second half of your question, which is sort of the interesting one, why then is there this like burgeoning But Well, first of all, I don't think we ever have to link, you know, profit with science, right? I mean, in that way, right? Like people will make money off things that are not scientific all the time. But I, I just think, people have responded really well to mindfulness. Absolutely not everybody and not across the board, but people find that it improves their lives. And I think that people who want to monetize it are getting behind that, you know? And it's just like, okay. I mean, partially there's some apps that have like big, big money behind it. That's why you're seeing that, that figure. I think for the most part, it's not the big, big money, honestly, looking at the field.
0: Okay, all right, yeah. and then, so I want to talk about some of the benefits, but firstly, let's just talk about some of the problems that come up when we try and study mindfulness. Why is it so hard to study mindfulness?
1: Okay, so one reason is um there's no part of the brain that is the mindfulness part of the brain, right? There's like different so this is for in neuroscience, right there's different parts of the brain that are associated with it, and there are outcomes associated with mindfulness, so compassion, kindness, altruism peace, equanimity, they're, they're associated, but they're not mindfulness. So it gets a little murky, like, wait, what are we studying? Or there's so many different elements. Another thing is when mindfulness is being taught, now this has changed a lot, but a lot for a long time, it was studied in a group format, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was really hard to discern is the person getting better because the teacher, the group component, the mindfulness itself, the fact that they did some yoga, that like like all of those pieces, it, it kind of muddies it quite a bit. And then most of the studies tend to not be longitudinal. So there's a lot of like question marks about like... If I'm looking, let's say, a neuroscience study where I see the brain of a meditator is really incredible because there's so much you know, gray matter in certain areas, but we don't know what they were like before. So it's just it, mm-hmm. it's, those are the kinds of issues that that are sort of hampering the studies
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And the idea that so much of this relies on self-report questionnaires. How how, we, how were you feeling six weeks ago? <laughs> how are you feeling now? <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, it's it seems very problematic. And and you you raise the point in the book. Maybe the more mindful you think you are, the less insight you actually have into your own mindfulness.
1: <laughs> well, I know. Like I've done it. You know, I've taken questionnaires. So I've been practicing mindfulness for thirty years. I've taken questionnaires, and then they ask you like, "How mindful were you when this happened?" And and because I'm know mindfulness pretty well, I know I'm not that mindful at mm-hmm. times. So my score went down even though I'm a mindfulness teacher. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. The problems of self-report questionnaires. And I also wanted to draw out something that you mentioned about the connection to science. And and I found this quote really interesting. You said that mindfulness is a tool we can use to examine conceptual frameworks to lessen the influence of preconceptions and to experience what is by choice rather than through drugs or neurological damage. Perhaps ironically, this echoes the basic principle of all science to observe data without preconceived ideas as to what the data will show. Mindfulness and science share this principle about the discovery of knowledge, yet the former approaches, it through a first-person observational techniques and the latter through third-person observational techniques. And so what I thought of when I read that was that this sort of doesn't take into account the inherent biases that the researcher themselves brings to the study that affect everything from the study question to the sampling method to the analysis plan to the discussion of the results. And so if we can't hope to be bias-free in Mm -hmm. our use of the scientific method, can we hope to be bias-free in understanding our own experience? Is that even desirable? Oh my goodness.
1: That's a great question. I don't know. (laughs) I'm aware of, I just want to point out that I co-wrote that book with a fully present, I think you're quoting from, with a scientist who was the one who wrote that part. So I cannot speak as knowledgeably as she could about this particular thing. Okay. All right. Question. Yeah. Okay.
0: And so Let's talk about some of the specific benefits that we've seen, because I know that your lab has been very active on some aspects of this research. And also I was able to find some other studies that I think are probably pretty relevant to parents. And and we're going to focus mostly on results that are relevant to parents and and children rather than the sort of broader, the whole spectrum of of benefits. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can tell us what the research is that you're familiar with, and then maybe I can also add some, some studies that I found as well.
1: Okay, so one of the the first study we ever did when our center started was with adults and adolescents with ADHD, and that was done with Lydia Zaleska, who was the had the grant for that. And we went, we developed an eight week mindfulness protocol, and we brought them through that, and found at the end that there was significant impact on people's ability to pay attention, is including the kids. Like that, we were sort of surprised, like what would happen, but. The improvement was in conflict attention. So conflict attention is when you have one thing that you're trying to pay attention to and many things are distracting you, like I'm distracting you right now. And so conflict attention improves significantly in the mindfulness group. And so that was like one of the first studies we did related to adolescents and parent and adults. And then since then we've done some research and we did another study early on with kids where we brought mindfulness and found into we used the school laboratory at uh, UCLA and and the school that is connected to the lab at UCLA and they found that kids they were offered a mindfulness program and kids improved executive functioning primarily in the kids who were more dysregulated so The kids who already had a certain level of regulation were okay, but I mean, like there wasn't a huge amount of change, but the kids who had more severe dysregulation, there was um, significant improvement. And that work was done with... Lisa Fluck, who has since moved to the University of Wisconsin with Richie Davidson. She's now in Richie Davidson's lab and she's doing incredible work with kids and schools and mindfulness. But I cannot speak to the current state of what she's up to.
0: Mm. And I wonder if we could just pause there and and just note a couple of features of that study, which I thought was super interesting. The measure was ecologically valid, which means that the, the thing that they were measuring at the end was what did the parent and the teacher see? What changes in the child's behavior did they see, rather than just some sort of arbitrary measure that was not useful in the real world? But on the same note, there was no way to mask which condition the child was in. The teacher and the and the parent would have both known if the that child was doing mindfulness or was in the the control condition or in the experimental condition and doing the mindfulness work. And so it seems as though there's a huge potential for somebody who a teacher who's invested in mindfulness to say, oh yeah, that, that kid totally improved. And, <laughs> and and they were in the mindfulness. Oh no, that kid wasn't, and I didn't really see any difference. And and there were only 32 children in each condition. So it's even doing one of these would have a potentially large impact on on the overall results. And that, that's just to kind of illustrate the the challenges that we face in doing this research.
1: And it brings up what you were talking about earlier, the biases of the investigator, the mm-hmm. biases of yeah. Everybody involved.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what other findings have you seen from your lab?
1: So most of the other studies we've done has been with adults so at, at UCLA. So there's like, you know, as I mentioned, thousands of studies being done all over, but most of the studies have been with adults. So we've done studies looking at sleep and this was done with older adults and we had insomnia symptoms improve over the course of a study. We've done, as I mentioned, we're doing the breast cancer studies. We're doing some studies now. I, I mean, I don't know how relevant these are, but these are for Alzheimer caregivers. We're about to start a study for stem cell transplant recipients. We're doing something with, well, this is one that's kind of interesting. Actually, I'll share it because it's not, it's a little different than what we normally do, but we were interested in the altruism. We had a postdoc who was interested in altruism. And so he had people listen to an audio meditation and then play this game, which was a video game where you give away money. And so they had the control group didn't listen to the audio, obviously. And it turned out that the the people who listened to the audio before playing the game were two and a half times more generous than the people who weren't. So there seems to be this link, at least in this small study, although there Mm -hmm. there were a lot of people in the study, there seems to be a link between mindfulness and altruistic outcomes. And that's that's the thing we were talking about some of the confusion in studying mindfulness, like there's mindfulness itself, but then there are all these associated states that people measure Mm -hmm. that come with it that are, you know, great things to have. Mm -hmm. But muddy the water.
0: Yeah. I, I was really interested in that study as well. And yeah, 326 participants. Yay. <laughs> and <laughs> right. The sample representative of the U S population. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I, I, I pulled that one out as one to talk about, because I think parents often do want to raise children who are altruistic and who have this quality. And so something that we might think is being completely unrelated, we can see that potentially has these links to all these other qualities as well. Do you wish you knew the appropriate logical consequence to give your child, age 1 to 10, for each different kind of misbehavior they do in a day? Everything from refusing to put on their shoes, to messing about with the dog's water bowl, to getting out of bed 300 times every evening. But do logical consequences sort of feel like punishments? Do you wish that you didn't have to use them as much? I've helped thousands of parents to get rid of logical consequences and replace them with joyful, calm, collaborative family relationships. I'll show you how to do it in my free Setting Loving and Effective Limits workshop. After last year's workshop, parent Finula said, the biggest difference between now and eight days ago is that I'm not freaking out as much. Sign up now at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash setting limits because we're about to get started. I was also interested in a study about uh, patients that had experienced a psychotic episode and participated in a three-minute mindfulness meditation. But I think they were basically in the doctor's office and the doctor said, okay, listen to this recording. There's this woman, Diana Winston, and she, <laughs> she's recorded this, this thing. And I think they used your meditation, didn't they? And the people that in the experimental group, only 20 participants, there was no control group, <laughs> had a, a, a significant decrease in their level of anxiety right then and there, although we don't know if it was more, more generalized after they had left the doctor's office.
1: Right, right. So
0: do we think that this has significance for uh, managing anxiety in non-clinical populations when you're not having a psychotic break?
1: Well, like I was saying, the research around anxiety and depression is fairly robust. And that's partially because of the development of the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program where they've done a lot of like, and also, so there are these clinical programs, that one, and then ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. There's a lot of research around that where they integrate mindfulness into these clinical treatments and show that these tools are helpful. So I think one can pretty safely say that mindfulness can positively impact, Anxiety and depression in non-clinical and clinical populations, but not severely anxious. Not like if you're really, really anxious, really, really depressed, getting even getting a person to meditate is too hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's not going to work until they're sort of like head is above the water in a way.
0: Okay. That's helpful. And yeah, we will actually have an episode coming up on exceptions and commitment therapy as well. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Excited for that one. And then talking about parenting, there were a couple of studies that I found on that. The more that parents reported engaging in mindful behaviors, the more attuned and responsive they were to their child's needs, which was explained by lower levels of parenting stress associated with higher levels of mindfulness, although that did rely on self-report and the parents saying, oh yeah, I felt like I was more attuned to my child, not a representative sample. No physiological measures of mindfulness or parenting stress. And then there was another one that said that the elements of mindfulness are not equally predictive of parenting efficiency. Um, And that the key elements seem to be this improved non-reactivity to inner experience. And that's the idea that we're feeling flooded by something our child is doing. It's just pushed our buttons. And that if we can bring this awareness to that and and create a pause uh, before we react and change it from a reaction into a response, that we can then respond more effectively to our child. And, and to me, that was not so terribly surprising because that's, it's actually something I've been teaching parents for a while now is, is ways to create that pause. And, and so the idea that that would lead to better parenting outcomes felt kind of intuitive to me, but it was nice to see it confirmed by the research.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's great. I'm not so familiar with those studies, but that sounds wonderful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, Moving on from the research a little bit I think an idea that has been on my mind a lot lately is the idea of grounding strategies and and by that I mean strategies that we use to center ourselves when we're feeling really hyper stressed
1: mm-hmm. and and
0: that we do that through getting in touch with our physical experience and to remind ourselves that we are actually physically safe in this moment and one that I found to be super helpful is just stroking a soft piece of fabric when I'm incredibly mm-hmm. flooded is something that can really bring me back into this moment and think okay yeah I yeah, I am safe safe right now. This is something that I can cope with. And it struck me as being an incredibly privileged view of the world. And I'm just thinking about someone like Breonna Taylor, whom police officers woke up in the middle of the night in her own bed by shooting her to death. And it's not uncommon for people in some neighborhoods to be shot in their own homes by random bullets flying around that was intended for someone other than them. And so I'm just thinking, okay, yes, I can sit here and think, well, I'm completely flooded in this moment. I'm stressed out of my mind. But yes, I am safe. I am safe here in my home. And that not everybody can say that. And so how can we reconcile that, do you think?
1: I think that, well, I'll go back to saying that, like, at least mindfulness practices that do the work of grounding and center are not appropriate in every situation for every person. It's just, you know, people are going to find their own ways. And some communities, it might be the relationship that they have with the church or with, you know, like there are many many ways of coming to this place of grounding, of centering, of connecting. And I I just don't want to make assumptions. Like, I don't know what Breonna Taylor's uh, spiritual life was like. Right. We don't know. Yeah. So the thing that I'm really interested in and just sort of taking it in with to the mindfulness world is, so I train a lot of teachers and the teachers come from a huge variety of backgrounds and communities and internationally and a lot, probably predominantly U.S. But I'm really interested in seeing the translation of mindfulness into the communities in a way that's going to serve and really speak to and speak from within those popu- the populations. Mm-hmm. Because the way I, as a white woman with this level of education, whatever, I'm not going to speak to someone in another, in another community. It's just like, no, I will not be listened to. And so let's create a f- flowering of of different ways of speaking and expressing this so that people can benefit from it. And also with the acknowledgement, as I've said now many times, like, yeah, and you don't have to do it either. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No one's forcing us to do this. And so I'm curious about with the teachers you've interacted with who have come from backgrounds that are different from ours, mm-hmm. are there some ways that you're aware of that they've taken this and made it more relevant and useful to the communities they work with?
1: I have incredible, incredible stories and students who are doing like working with schools and in parts of LA and bringing in the arts and music and mindfulness and sort of like merging all that together or people who brought it into different like religious settings and taught mindfulness in the context, like, like, oh, there's a mindfulness, like group that I'm bringing into a church or a synagogue or something like So people are adapting and creating mindfulness. And I I feel really, like I want to see that. I want to see people's, I think the best teachers are the teachers that are really expressing themselves, who they are, and people feel it and sense it. So the mindfulness as a kind of, let's just, all sit here and be really quiet and meditate It's just, it's, it's one version of it. Mm-hmm. It always comes back to awareness. Like, can we practice awareness in any context? And we can be aware in the midst of anything really. Mm,
0: okay. And so then maybe we can practice that now. (laughs) So, so there may be parents who are listening to this, who are pretty much where I was kind of a year and a half ago and just thinking, okay, could this actually do something meaningful for me? (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but maybe I'm willing to uh, suspend judgment and give it a try. And so what are some tools that we can use to get started? And do you want to walk through some of those or what's, what's the best way of, of doing that?
1: Sure. So first of all, it's hard to just jump in and do it yeah. alone. So I recommend listening to guided meditations, which is how you got started, right? Yeah. And so so we have, I mean, we have some resources, I assume you'll link, but like the UCLA Mindful app, which has a lot of meditations, including like three minute, five minute meditations. Mm-hmm. So we just start small. I like people to start with five minutes mm-hmm. because that's really doable. Everybody has time, even if you have like, you know, 100 kids or something, you can still find five minutes, five minutes. And so we just start off with a basic practice of finding one's breathing. There's other options because for not everybody, breathing feels like a good place to start. But Most people start with their breath and then your attention wanders off and you come back to your breath and you just keep coming back again and again. And in that way, over time, you begin to train your mind to come into the present moment to something that's neutral, that's always available for us. And so... So I can walk people through a, a short meditation if you want. Yeah, that
0: would be awesome. And and I just want to clarify and, and draw out the point that you just made that you're concentrating on your breath if, if that's what you want to do. I do do that, and I, but I find that my I can't help myself from controlling it if, if I mm-hmm. concentrate on it. So I do find it difficult. But yes, your mind is going to wander. And no, that does not mean you have failed at mindfulness <laughs> or at meditation. And that the practice is in coming back in a way that you don't say, oh, I screwed it up again. I'm no good at this. I'm never going to be any good at mindfulness. That seeing your mind has wandered and then recognizing that and bringing it gently and non-judgmentally back is the practice, right? It's it's not that if I've my mind hasn't wandered for five minutes, then I'm the most amazing meditator in the world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. That's where people get stopped up, right? They start meditating their mind wanders and they think they failed and they right. quit. So yeah. thank you for that. Very clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a key
0: thing for me to learn at the beginning. So, <laughs> I want to make sure that that was crystal clear before we go in. So,
1: okay, awesome. So, let's just do. We'll we'll do a couple of minutes, and okay. people can see where they are. So, I just invite you wherever you are to settle back in a way that's comfortable to you. Like you're on a chair, just notice your feet on the ground. If you're on a couch, a bed. Just take a breath and really notice your feet connected to the ground, feeling the weight, heaviness, touch and see if you can feel the support of the ground. And this is what you mentioned earlier, Jen, this this, this sense of grounding, the support of the ground that may be many stories below. It's still, there's a connection. Let's turn our attention to the sounds around us. There may be sounds coming and going. Listen to the sounds as they come and go. without getting lost in the story. I like that sound. I don't like that sound. Just listen. And now come back in your body and see if you can notice your body breathing, the rising and falling of your abdomen or chest. or the air moving through your nose, tingling, warmth, coolness. Just a natural breath through your nose. So let's find something to focus on. We can use our breath in our abdomen, chest, or nose or you might use listening to sounds. Or if you just liked feeling the sensations of your feet against the ground, pick something. They all work equally well, so just pick, pick whatever is calling out to you right now. Let's notice moment after moment. Breath after breath. Sound or sensation after sound or sensation. As you do this, you might notice that your attention starts to wander. Start thinking about all sorts of things, planning, remembering, imagining. When that happens, you're not doing anything wrong. You can Say a soft word in your mind, like thinking, and then gently return your attention right back to your breath or the listening or your feet. So I'm going to be quiet for one minute as you try it on your own. And now notice how you're doing as we bring this meditation to a close. Notice if you're feeling more relaxed, at ease. You may or may not be. If you are, just enjoy the ease, the relaxation. And if it's if you're not, just notice what's here. Letting whatever is here be here. And then when you're ready, take one more breath with awareness. And open your eyes or end the meditation.
0: Hmm. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) You have a voice that's made for that. So okay, so you did a number of things in there, and of course, I was trying to keep track of them at the same time as I was trying to be mindful. So, so you sort of did a combination there of a couple of different types of meditation practice, and so I just want to draw people's attention to those. And and so in your book, uh, in your most recent book, you talk more about natural awareness and this idea of focusing on what is present here, right now, no matter what that is. And sounds are a great one to use for that because they do come and go. of course, I had my daughter walking down the hallway and I'm Mm -hmm. thinking, okay, she's not hearing my voice. Is she going to hear your voice or is she going to hear silence and she's going to start knocking and coming in? <laughs> and so I had to bring my mind away from that. And then you also uh, helped us to focus on a certain part of our experience as well, sort of a more focused attention. And I love the blending of the two. And I didn't realize until some months after I'd started that you can blend these two parts of the, the meditation practice and that you don't have to only focus on the breath or only focus on whatever is the predominant experience and that you can sort of seamlessly flow back and forth. Do you Do you use it that way in your practice? as well
1: i think i mean my practice is sort of responsive to the present moment so if i find that my mind is really really scattered it might be really appropriate for me to just sort of keep it very focused if i'm feeling sort of relaxed alert and things are just passing by i can just sort of sit in that space and enjoy that Depends, yeah yeah
0: Okay. And then as you were telling us to focus on a a specific part of of our experience, whatever was calling to us most loudly in that moment, I didn't put my feet flat flat on the floor. I probably should have done. So only my big toe was resting on the floor and Mm -hmm. it was starting to get pressured. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. that was really calling to me. But... Uh, over time, it it actually shifted, and it reminded me of a practice from the Ten Percent Happier app that I use. It was uh, by a teacher named Jeff Warren, and the the title of this meditation is "Sit Still, and It Will Hurt Eventually." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's the idea that when you're sitting in in one position for maybe twenty minutes, eventually you'll get pins and needles or something will be uncomfortable, and if you can sit with that and just experience it for what it is without shifting and and trying to get rid of it, that experience of that will change and it did for me in this moment you know my toe wasn't really hurting but i could definitely feel that pressure it was the predominant part of my experience but over time my elbow was resting on my hand here on on the desk and suddenly that became the thing that was most predominant and my toe was just kind of there in the background but it wasn't the predominant thing and and i think that seeing that shift happen just in that little isolated incident can be super helpful to help us understand this happens throughout our lives (laughs) It's something that seems so all-consuming right now in just a little bit isn't going to be so all-consuming. And I I think it can make it easier to deal with.
1: Yeah, it's a great observation. I'm so glad that you had that experience. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a part of the practice that I really enjoy. So, um so thank you for for helping us through that. And so as we sort of start to wrap up, I'm just thinking about some of the ideas that are maybe more grounded in Buddhism that this mindfulness meditation practice draws from. And you wrote a book a while ago now called Wide Awake, A Buddhist Guide for Teens. And I actually found it in my little free library across the street. And that was my very first introduction to you. Uh And I actually really recommend it even to adults, because even though the examples are more geared towards, you know, such and such is my boyfriend and (laughs) Mm -hmm. so and so isn't talking to me. It's an incredibly readable book. You just kind of distill these principles into language that's nowhere near as fluffy and, and esoteric as <laughs> many of these other books that I've read. And I was so struck by your description that you opened the book with of what your teenage years were like. And it seems as though you trod exactly the path that so many people of our generation did, being told to stay in school and get good grades and get a good job and make a lot of money. And we have this impression that the world is such an insecure place and that if we can just have money, if we just have a degree so we can always know we can earn money, then we'll have our fair share of the money. And in some ways, I think that you were lucky because you noticed the discrepancy between your values and the cultural messages, even though you recognized that you were still steeped in this culture when you were quite young. And I work with a lot of parents now, my age and myself included, who are realizing, well, did I actually even choose this path that I've been on the whole time? That actually my parents chose this path and and I just kept putting one foot in front of the other because there was no other viable decision that I could make and there was no other alternative. And so I'm wondering, are there ideas that you uh, wish you had known about in your childhood that you know about now that would have shifted your trajectory? And even sort of one step down from that, I know you have a daughter how has your experience of having this awakening as it were shifted the way that you interact with your daughter and the kinds of ideas that you raise her to, to be comfortable with?
1: Hmm. Lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, sorry. <laughs> okay, just trying to think how to best answer. You know, I feel really lucky that I kind of carved out my own path. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't follow what all of my peers did and there were many reasons why that happened, but you know, like I ended up in Asia and I got into these meditative practices and pretty much everyone I knew. And this was like the late 80s where they were all going to law school and medical school. And, you know, I mean, like that was what, what my peers yeah. were doing. It's, so it's,
0: Today is the investment banks and the consulting firms. But it's oh yeah, it's well, it was yeah.
1: that too back then. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I kind of followed, I kept listening inside me, but what I wanted to do and just kept following it. And I was like incredibly lucky that I had parents who were really supportive of that. Mm. You know, I mean, my mother probably for like 10 years, every year she'd say, so are you going to go to graduate school anytime soon? But um, but ultimately she stopped that one. And then it was, are you going to have a baby? anytime?" <laughs> then she stopped that one. And then I had a baby, but never went to graduate school. Yeah. Um, but so I feel like, I feel really grateful for having been able to just have the leeway and the ability to just follow my sort of like heart desire like i loved to meditate i didn't know at the time that it was going to become my career or anything at the time i just really wanted to meditate and spent many years doing it in a very like deep and intensive way so when i think about my daughter right now you know a lot of my mindful work with my daughter she's now 11 is about letting her be herself You know, I see how many times, even in a day, I get caught up in like an idea. Oh, you should do this. Or you should be like, or how come you're not like me here? Or how come you're, you know, all of these stories I carry her and I, about her. And I use my mindfulness practice to like, oh, right. That's a story, Dinah. That's not who she is. And reminding myself to get more grounded and centered and come back to my feet and my breath and let her evolve who she's going to be and really trust that and really have faith in that. Because because when I get anxious, it's like I lose to, oh no, she's not... Like when she was younger, she wasn't that into reading. And that was like a huge deal for me. Oh my God, I'm such a reader. My daughter doesn't love to read. She's still not a big reader, but it's not hampering her in any way. She's like blossoming in 50 other ways you know but when my when I get caught in that story she's not like me she's not right that's when I'm suffering so I settle back and trusting and going oh she's becoming who she is let her be that with my guidance of course but you know wow
0: well there there's our soundbite of the episode (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's such a profound thing to understand. And even the flip side of that as well, that maybe I love reading and my daughter doesn't love to read. And I, I wish she would love to read. Or... Oh, I see how certain aspects of my personality have made my life so hard. You know, maybe I'm an introvert and and I see that being introverted has made my life so hard. And so I want to expose her to people and and social skills and all the rest of it and so that she doesn't have the same hard experiences that I've had. And so I think the flip side of what you said about wanting your child to be like you, you can also want your child to not be like you. Totally. And either way, that creates suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you want your child to be like you or not like you, both of those create suffering. And the idea that we can recognize our child's own experience and allow them to have that experience with our guidance. I mean, doesn't doesn't that just sum up parenting?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it, yeah, it's um, and I think it's it's a really hard place for parents to be when we're told by our culture, and and we feel as though we need to teach our child everything, and if we haven't taught our child to love to read, then we've failed as a parent. We we haven't done our job. Yeah. Uh, whereas our children can still have satisfied, fulfilling, empowered lives. Even if they don't love reading, <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here to share this with us. Uh, I, I'm I'm really hoping that that parents who might have heard of mindfulness and meditation before and maybe thought, eh, "Why even bother?" will have heard this and and think, "Okay, I think it's worth a try." <laughs> mm-hmm. And and maybe it won't yield anything useful, but I will say that I have seen profound shifts in my ability to respond differently to situations in ways that I couldn't have even imagined I, a year and a half ago when I started practicing. It has not been a linear, okay, I meditated for half an hour last night and today, you know, I didn't shout at my husband when he did something I wish he hadn't done. Mm-hmm. It's been a much more subtle, gradual shift, but then all of a sudden something happens. And I'm like, oh, a year ago, that would have, <laughs> I, I would not have been able to deal with that. And now I really can. And so thank you so much for, for being here and, and for sharing your practice with us
1: my pleasure it's been really fun and so
0: the links to diana's books including her latest book the little book of being as well as all the other resources that we've discussed today can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash mindfulness you may be committed to gentle or respectful parenting for your child age one to ten but perhaps you're worried that you're too permissive and maybe other people have even told you you're too permissive can you be a gentle or respectful parent and not be permissive Yes, you can, but only if you know your needs, which are different from the strategies you're using to meet your needs. I'll show you how to identify your needs and get them met in the free setting loving and effective limits workshop. Sign up now at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash setting limits because we're getting started very soon. And don't forget that links to references for the show, as well as to Diana's books, including her latest, The Little Book of Being, can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash mindfulness. And if you'd like to join me for the Taming Your Triggers workshop, then I'd love to see you there. Find out all the details at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash triggers Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one. And also join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. For more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you, I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.